Hello, everybody. I am the Rokodo voice, and I have something to tell you about your own voice. You hear it every time you speak or sing, and yet you don't know how it sounds to others. This is a scientific fact. Here at last is a way you can test your voice, and hear it as it actually sounds to others. You know that personality is denoted by your voice. You can now find out what yours is like. Step up to this wonder machine and make a permanent record of your voice. It only takes a minute, and all it costs is sixpence. You can speak or sing up to 125 words in any language. And as soon as you have finished, your completed record is instantly delivered. On the side of this machine, there's a little gramophone on which you can play your record and listen to it with earphones. And you can listen to this with earphones if you like, or through your radio, through speakers, or any way you like. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. There's nothing we like better at the Bureau than to dig up a story from the past, unearth it, excavate it, revivify it, bring it into the light and shake it down. We love stories, testimonies from the other side, from the counterculture, stories of obsolete, strange technology. And this episode has a bit of all that stuff, long before you could just press a button on your iPhone or your computer and, or in Zoom and record your voice. You could walk into a department store or a railway station or perhaps at the end of a pier and enter a strange-looking booth, somewhat like one of those passport photo booths or a telephone box. And you could put some money in and you could record your voice and make a record in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, up until the 70s, I think. You just heard an example of how to do it at the beginning of the programme. It was a wonderful thing because people got the chance for the first time to hear their own voice, to make a record. How special is that still to this day? It's an obsolete technology and who better to join us to tell that story than our guest on this particular program of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I was there with my friend and collaborator Paul Hartfield and we invited in Alan Dean, BBC radio producer, who's made many wonderful documentaries. And, most importantly, for the purposes of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture, he is the expert on the self-made record. So, let's take it away. Hello, Alan. Hello, Stephen. Am I an expert? I'm passionate and I've been following and exploring the story of these discs. And you're absolutely right. What's so incredible about this area of music history is that really it dropped out. It dropped through the cracks of history. Mm. We don't know much about it. We are now still trying to find out exactly what went on, particularly in the non-commercial world of recording music. Right, so if I said to you, what is a self-made record? I mean, I use that phrase self-made rather than homemade. Maybe you could just tell us what it is. We heard a little bit of an instruction there at the beginning from your collection, didn't we? Yeah, well, that one is from the 1930s, and that was the beginning of what we'd call the coin-operated machine. So that really started in conjunction with the amusement and entertainment industry. Just like today, we have photo booths, um, which we're all familiar with getting a picture taken in a booth. In the old days, you could make a record in a booth. Actually, in the 1930s, they weren't booths. They looked more like a skyscraper, and you stood at it, and you weren't enclosed. You just you actually spoke into a microphone, and as the advert said, and when your record popped out, you could actually listen to it. But really, the story goes much further back. It goes back to really the beginning of the gramophone industry. In those early days there was a passion to actually find a way of presenting and recording the voice because the voice the voice was quite a spiritual and special thing it represented the person's soul and there was an idea of capturing that and certainly even before the music industry jumped onto the bandwagon the early recordings were really about the voice and about sort of presenting the voice, recording the voice. And then by the early Edwardian times, the most interesting thing about it is that they were used for professional reasons. They were office tools. The idea of being able to work in a big office, 
record memos, letters, and have secretaries write them up. And of course, the the only way to do that was find a machine that could do that. So these, it was a very specialist tool. And really what happens is that period between the early 20th century and the 1930s is how to democratize the voice. Because in the early days, most recordings were made professionally, either in a studio like the one we're in now, or at home in very expensive personal recording kits, either on cylinder or later on on gramophone records. And only a few people could afford to buy that kind of equipment. So what happens in the 1930s and why these 1930s discs are so lovely, it's the first time we really hear ordinary people's voices on disc. Amazing. And the connection with the X-Ray Audio Project from our point of view is, is that the Soviet bootleggers... They also bootlegged this technology, the technology which is used to make your own record in real time, uh, unlike pressing a record, which is the usual way of in the mass production in the recording industry. They got hold of a machine similar to the ones you're talking about. It was actually probably used by a journalist. Um, it was a German machine. And they managed to copy it, to hack it effectively. So that's the, really the connection for us, is that all these X-ray records, uh, they're all made in real time that all sound slightly different than each other. They obviously look different than each other because they're cut on x-rays. But it's the same technology, isn't it? It is the same technology or it becomes the same technology. What is so intriguing about the early years is there was so much experimentation. So the very early discs that I've come across are actually not discs as we know it today. They're more like postcards. And they were created by the French at the beginning of the 20th century. And the idea was is you had a little kit um, and it was a postcard with a disc on it and you would cut the disc with a little machine at a horn and you would record into the horn you would speak into the horn it would record your voice onto the disc and then you would send that postcard to a friend or a relative a lover or whatever and this idea was the beginning in a way of saying how can we actually sort of harness the voice and pass your message on like a letter a spoken letter and unfortunately the difficulty is is that that technology was very very clunky it didn't work um, it didn't take off it lasted a couple of years and it sort of fell into the it fell into the abyss and so really what happens is through this period more and more people are trying to find ways of exploring how to present that this technique and be able to pass and send messages on. So, of course, it's very, very experimental. And in a way, what's so exciting about all of this is that the music industry, in a way, is all experimental. There were no rules. We were all learning at this time and even learning mi microphone technique, how to speak into a microphone, what to say into a microphone. Um, let's face it, you know, cinema was still in its infancy. The spoken cinema doesn't even happen until the 1920s, late 20s, when you actually hear voices on the screen. Mm. Um, so it's all very rough and ready. And I think that's really exciting. And so so by the time in the mid-30s where these coin-operated discs come in, we've gone through lots of experimentation. And hey presto, they found the machine that works. It's great. Well, I'm going to play another one from your collection here, which is I think probably is a journalist, Roger Wilmot, talking about the machine and trying to use one at the same time. This recording is being made in a coin-operated automatic recording machine on Waterloo Station on the 17th of October 1969. The recording disc is made of a thin, laminated plastic, slightly thinner than a normal commercial 45 RPM record. And the process normally used in these machines is an embossing system, whereby the plastic is actually compressed to form the groove. Experiments have also been made in cutting on this type of plastic, and an example can be seen in one of Pete Copeland's message discs, recorded on the same kind of plastic, but actually cut. The trouble, of course, with both systems is that the plastic is noisy, whether cut or embossed, and also, of course, an embossed groove is rather likely to... Um, I do hope this is working, because it doesn't seem to be doing anything. An embossed groove is rather likely to become unembossed, so to speak, at the end uh, of a long period of time. You know, I don't think it's working at all. Well, we shall have to see. 
the uh, rather primitive arrangement uh, for indicating to you how long you've got to go is a wheel which rotates through a quarter of a turn, and so far it hasn't moved. Uh, personally, I think I've put my half crown in and been done again. <laughs> Yeah, we actually do record uh, X-rays live uh, from performances, and we have quite a few moments. Is, is it working? I'm not sure. Yeah. So, Paul, I mean, that's true, isn't it? It's not. E it's not an easy business. I mean, they got it. As Alan said, they got it then professionally. This is 1969, so that's quite late yeah. on, isn't it? But it's not an easy business, is it? It's not an easy business at all. And I go through that every time <laughs> without the accent and <laughs> more swear words. Uh, and for real nerds, I mean, that difference between cutting and embossing is, is just that, isn't it? Is that writing with a biro or something, isn't it? Rather than actually cutting. Yeah, prefer to cut. It's longer. Yeah, it lasts longer. So, Alan, by this time it's entered popular culture rather than be for pro professional people or in the office context. And so these machines, these coin-operated machines, where, did, where were they? I mean, like, where did they appear? The coin-operated machine had two massive phases. The first one was in the 30s, um, and they appeared in department stores. They would appear in ocean liners. And then within a year or two from 1935 to about 1937-8, you would have found them at the end of piers, you would have found them at railway stations, anywhere where people congregated. And the idea was really to get people to stick in their sixpences and record a disc. And it was very difficult because, of course, people were not prepared didn't realise what they could do. They'd never spoken into a microphone before. And just the ability to be able to stand and talk for 30, 40 seconds and not know what to say and to be able to kind of devise a kind of 40 seconds to a minute's worth of material was very difficult. So actually what is so interesting is it's actually a snapshot of the way we present ourselves in front of a microphone. But what is so interesting is that the naturalistic ones, the certainly the holiday ones where people really don't care as much and they're just going for it because it's a novelty. They'll throw their sixpence into the slot and whatever happens, whatever happens. They're actually some of the best ones because you get that kind of humanity that the soul that the recordists, the recording engineers of the 19th, early 20th centuries were looking for, the soul of people. And I think that's what's so wonderful about these recordings. Going back to Roger Wilmot's recording for a second, Rogers um, gave me that disc when I was making a series many years ago for the BBC. Roger was also talking about another very well-known sound engineer called Peter Copeland. Uh, well-known, he records lots of those BBC stereo discs that you could buy, you can still find around. And Peter ended up becoming the chief engineer at the uh, British Library National Sound Archive. And he was a real phenomenon. He knew a lot about the recording and the history of music. And one of the things that Peter always said that these records were elusive we don't really at that we never knew exactly how many were made no one knows how many were produced no one knows um, um how many were kept no one really knows um very much about the kind of the the the, the, the machinery of the business because all the documentation was destroyed there's very little information at our fingertips. And I'm sure that's something you found as well when you're researching the X-ray discs. Is is that you really you're, you're just you're going on whispers, hearsay, anything, and trying to gather the stories. And in a way, it's it's similar, even though this is not the cold block East, but this is this is this is Britain. Um, and obviously, we're specifically talking about Britain at the moment. But um, but of course, these discs became very popular around the world. Certainly, the company that produced the voice discs, uh, the aluminium little sixpenny six discs, they were they were sold throughout the the old empire. And you can you could make discs in um, pretty much in lots of different countries around the world. Um, and of course, America had its own ideas and recorded their own types of discs, which we can go on and talk about mm. a bit later. So actually, this technology was moving not only, um, you know, that the experimentation was still going, but what is so interesting is that other countries around the world were doing their own thing with these kind of recordings. Well, let's have a listen to another one from your collection, which I think is in Liverpool in a store. It was in a department store, I think, which was Lewis Stores, right? Hello there, old-timers. You remember that idea of mine about making gramophone records instead of writing letters? Well, here's the first example now. I'm up in Liverpool now. Well, I'm in Lewis's shop, as a matter of fact. Very good shop indeed. And June has just made a record. I'm afraid there's not very much to hear on it because she went all silent again, as usual. 
Gwen and her dad and June are off today on the Yoma. And I shall be sorry, I suppose, to see them go. Well, anyhow, it won't be many more days before I'm getting on board myself. As a matter of fact, I can't make this letter any longer. I'm beginning to feel the pains of hunger, and I haven't had a drink of any sort. Not only today, but not even last night. So I think we'd better rectify that at once. Cheerio, people. This is letter number one. Everything's all right. Cheerio. The record you have just heard on the reverse side of this disc was made at one of Lewis's stores. Eighty years ago, Lewis's started with a small shop of 26-foot frontage. And from this modest beginning, Lewis's have steadily grown to be the most outstanding retail distributing company of its kind in this country, probably in the world. Today, there is a Lewis's in Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, Glasgow, Leicester, and I'm going to fade him out, but I mean that's interesting as well, uh, uh, Alan, isn't it? Because it was then it becomes a sort of a carrier for an advertisement, doesn't it? Absolutely, and in fact, that was one of the ways that these machines could be placed in so many different locations throughout Britain. It was an expensive process. These machines were very solid, very beautifully constructed. They looked a little bit, as I said before, like um, 1930s skyscrapers, um, US skyscrapers. Very beautiful looking building, but it cost a lot to maintain. So the only way they could actually get sort of funding straight away is to create advertising. So what they did is they the, the discs were two-sided. They looked like the look like a kind of conventional CD. They're silver looking and aluminium. But as you can hear, they play very well. The quality is excellent. And in fact, I would argue far superior to what would come next in the 1960s with the famous caliber discs, which were vinyl and they were um, uh, 45 RPM discs. And these little aluminium discs were actually very good. The clarity was strong. You got about 45 seconds of audio on them. They were made in the machine, so they were embossed straight away in the machine, and they could pop out, you could play them. You still had to pay for them, so we didn't like them, you still had to pay the money. But the important thing is you could listen to them straight away. And also the great thing about them, which is so interesting, is the fact that you know this idea of democratising um, um, the voice, the fact that they were available in so many places, and actually, ironically, it, that led to the downfall of the company. Because these discs were, you can still find them, quite, they're quite plentiful. A lot of people did them. A lot of people recorded on them. Difficulty is, is they didn't get enough sixpences, even though, even though so many people used them, they just didn't get enough through the slot. They wouldn't pay for the machines. And by the end of the 30s, voice RP, voice records were no longer. Paul? Uh, were the advertising <coughs> discs already uh, recorded, or did they record each one as it went along? Double-sided. Good question. They were recorded um, beforehand. So they were all preloaded. They had a machine in Wembley. There was um, a big 1920s factory called the Hong Kong Works in Wembley. And this is where the company were based, an amusement equipment company. And what they did is they... They produced lots and lots of discs pre-recorded and they were sent out to the specific locations where the recordings were made. So, for example, Lewis's in Liverpool, those discs with the ad advert were sent there. There's adverts for um, End of Piers in South End and places like that. There's adverts for cigarettes, there's adverts for restaurants. So the adverts themselves are fascinating because they're a snapshot on the kind of commercial world of the time. But of course, that was exactly what they did. They were all pre-recorded. So would it be the same guy? You'd hear the same voice advertising chocolate, advertising... Lots yeah. of similar voices. You yeah. do notice about two or three voices. And there's a there's a wonderful song, which you which you may have or may not, called Make Mine a Minor, which was a minor was a cigarette. And it was actually... The voice was uh, we, we've discovered was a chap called Bobby Comba. And Bobby was a very well-known musical variety artist of the 30s and obviously got a few bob on the side to do the adverts for voice records. Excellent. Well, listen, just to go the opposite pole from the uh, the advertisement, I'm gonna, I've got a little test here for Alan. Now, um, Alan, I would like you to tell us who this is. All, the clues I'm going to give you is that <clears throat> it was recorded on Oxford Street, not very far from here, but... Not in a, uh, a department store, but in HMV, which also apparently had a recording machine in there. Let me play it and see if you can tell us who it is. Intrigued. Oh, so loose, very shaggy, go yard, blotter. 
I don't think we need to hear that much more of that. It goes on in that vein for some time. Any ideas? Oh, the timbre of the voice. I recognise it. Um, Stephen, any more little hints? Um, Clues? Well, he was infamous, uh, put it that way, rather than famous. Right. Uh, became, in fact, one of the most infamous people in the country and was known colloquially, well, they wouldn't guess it from that voice, as the Beast, or the Great Beast, in fact. Drawing a blank there. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay, well, it's actually Alice the Crowley. Oh, how interesting. Um, and he recorded that in the HMV store in the 1930s. It yes. was wrongly attributed as being recorded on wax cylinder, but in fact, actually, recorded under, he recorded a series of recordings on, on disc. And that is him reciting the language of the angels, apparently. It's fascinating the fact that so many people like Crowley, who were kind of connected to the arts, literature, music, did make these kind of recordings because even they were fascinated in what their voice sounds like back to them because most people don't know what we actually sound like and it was the first time and a lot of people didn't record professionally but were well known in their own fields like Crowley of course so it was very that's very interesting but of course going back to the kind of in a way what the voice meant and this idea of the voice as a spirit and also a lot of the early recordings there was an idea that you could record the dead the past mm. and 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 there's the idea that you could lift the spirits out of the ground in a way through actually sort of capture a microphone could capture something that we can't hear all of these ideas were kicking around the 19th century and kicking around the idea of the poss what the possibilities were of actually capturing sound so i, I it, it's in, intriguing and coincidental mm -hmm. that it, it is um of course crowley um and and, and and it's so interesting that a lot of people did use these recordings and of course the another commercial avenue for the new recording industry the fledgling industry was not only the shops would sell records but they would offer a facility to record your own voice and particularly musicians made took it up and even they had studios where they had a piano or they had um, a couple of instruments available or an area where you could go in with your band and record your one of one disc so that became another popular area as opposed to the coin operated disc which is much more rough and ready and it's a perfect segue because actually we've got some more things from your collection here. I suspect these were recorded in the coin-operated things, but these are some songs. So this is Riley's song from the 1930s from your collection. Where the blues of the night meet the dawn of the day, someone waits for me. Well, somebody you think of that. The recording's like uh, just about nearly going to finish, so uh, I'll send you a letter when we get down to Australia. That'll be about six weeks' time, and uh, I'll keep on writing continuously, say, every week or so. And uh, so I hope you get this um, safely. I keep it till I get back home. I'll be home in about maybe ending from 18 months to two years so to that. I mean, crikey, how much history is packed into that one minute? I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, beautifully sung. 
Yeah. I don't know if it's an Irish, is it an Irish song or something? I'm not sure what it is, the folk tune, but he sounds like he's in Liverpool and he's going to head off to Australia, emigrating or something. Is that what's going on there? Or? Yeah, he said he's going to be back in a couple of years. So he, he's most probably got a job out there. Um, and of course, it was the era of the sort of 10 pound palms. So many people left the industrial north and, and other places to start a new life in Australia. And the, these kind of discs would have been mementos. The, maybe the last time you would have heard of voice and of course making a phone call from Australia back to England would have been just so phenomenally prohibitive as far as cost that that disc would have left people you know the sound of that person's voice until they got back and and I think that was very important and of course singing was a natural that was inevitable that's what people were going to do in these booths because you know you could do it and obviously people had songs in them, the popular song, you know, the kind of the, the Irish song, the pub song, obviously, the, the, the you know, in this case um, is, is obviously from Liverpool where sort of a, a, one of the homes of, of, of songs. So I, I, I think that, it, as you said, it's, it's, it's packed with stuff and I would say it's 1930s. I think it may be an aluminium disc. It might most probably is a voice disc. Amazing quality as well, isn't it? Superb. You know, superb quality. And also, as you were saying earlier, the power of the voice is like the soul of the person captured in a way that a letter never could. Because actually, it's got them in it, isn't it? It's all in there, isn't it? And he's trying to squeeze his message in and his song and it all together. And it's wonderful. Totally. And, and, and also the fact that when he's describing, he's talking afterwards, the, you know, it, it is pretty naturalistic and that's nice it's not a someone you know a lot of people wrote down what they were going to say and in fact actually that is important because in the 90 from the 1920s when the bbc starts broadcasting and um, the way we would speak in a studio is we would have a prepared set of texts so everything was read there was very little naturalism and that formality continued for many, many decades, actually. Um, and so what is interesting is that when you hear people talking that in a kind of loose, relaxed way, it is unusual and it is, it is so rare. And, and, and so the, these are vital bits of social history, as you say, they are so important. When do you think this kind of radio voice came in? Were people, you say people were running from script. The looseness of that one is beautiful. You can feel their personality. But the quite, quite a few of them are read from a script. When did you think, do you think that was an understanding that it was a, um, a radio voice, for want of a better phrase? Or? Definitely. Um, there was, um, a, 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 shall we say, a received type of radio voice. And the reason why they do stand, sound stilted is because they did exactly that. They imitated the the presenters and the hosts of radio mm. programmers. And so was the posh accent put on? As for... I think people did. People tried to transform their voice into how you should speak to a microphone mm. and in the old days people addressed the microphone if you went into a bbc studio you weren't even allowed in without a tuxedo <laughs> you know the way we're dressed we wouldn't even get it you know we wouldn't get in through the doors you know it was a very important you know it, it was the the pedestal of those people the difference between those people who broadcast and people who had never broadcast was so high it still is to a certain extent but mm. back then it was and obviously the democratization of these discs is very important because it gives people a chance to kind of to, to speak and to capture their voices but but you know what, what you're saying is so important you know that the idea of when we hear that disc how natural it sounds um, and and also what what is so nice about it is that is that when we listen to these recordings, we're listening to something so fleeting. It's, mm. it's that most people most probably won't even remember what they did. It's just a second in their lives. It's, it's just, and you know, to capture like a photograph, uh, you know, it, 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 it does offer a very, very unusual snapshot of history. Let's have a listen to another one.
Imagine that bringing a tear to Granny's eye, can't you? It makes you want to clap, doesn't it? Well In terms of what you're saying, it's the kind of opposite, isn't it, of the sort of BBC radio voice? It's completely spontaneous and, uh, you know, right from the heart, right? It's so sweet. And um, um, that that disc was loaned to me by Stephanie, um, who oh. obviously was now a woman, um, a mother, grandmother. Um, um, and it was... It was a beautiful recording, as you said. It's it, it 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 feels very natural. It is different in to the stuff that was recorded in the thirties. Definitely post-war, nineteen fifties. Definitely recorded in a little studio, um, and it would have been one of many recordings that were um, um, done in shops, record shops, gramophone shops, um, and music shops offered little studios where you could go and you would pay a little bit more. So, th- th- you know, that would have been maybe five bob or something or ten bob. It wouldn't have been cheap, cheap because you would have had to have an operator recording it and so forth. You wouldn't have been able to just do it all yourself, you know, put a coin in and just, and just you know, press go. And you can imagine that being becoming a treasured part of the sort of family history. Well, she kept it, obviously, and gave it to you. And can you talk a little bit, Alan, about how you came across this? You know, what, what was your route into it in the first place? I mean, you're an oral historian, but, I mean, how did you develop this passion for it? I, I think it became because of my work as an oral historian, you know, the voice was essential and mm. capturing people talking. But like so many of us who are passionate about these discs, you stumble upon them. You know, whether it's in um, a car boot sale or charity shop. And I think the first one I found was in a charity shop. Um, And I took it home. And, of course, you knew, like everybody else does when they play it, this is unlike anything else that is produced commercially. It is a one-of-one disc. It's someone's life. Obviously, initially, it's kind of sad it ends up there. How How did these things end up in charity shops? Why weren't they treasured like you know like like stephanie's disc why didn't someone hold on to it who knows what happens um often it ends up in people's in those days and when i started to collect them in the 1980s and they ended up in people's vinyl collections when they were chucking them out for the when the cd revolution was happening it they just got lost in the record collection and as they binned or dumped the whole record collection out went some of these discs and so a lot of the discs that were found subsequently unfortunately didn't have the provenance Mm. they just found voices like found photographs very fascinating and we love to look at found photographs and we're intrigued by them but there's nothing like having the story because obviously we can make our own story when we look when we hear a voice and we look at a photograph but when you actually hear someone talking about Mm. that record and obviously the social history around that record there's nothing else like it so so what i did when i first started to kind of really dive into these records and trying to find a way of understanding them i put an advert in the Radio Times, and this was in the 1990s when you could do that kind of thing, and said, does anyone have these discs? And people sent them in, and this was at the BBC, and they sent them in originals, (laughs) um, which was amazing. Some people dubbed them off onto cassette or reel-to-reel, but it's amazing how many people sent the original. Um, And obviously what I was doing was I was dubbing them all off, digitising them, and then sending back their originals. Um, And they made a a series of radio programmes about them. But what was wonderful, of course, is that they had the provenance. They could tell me about the disc, and they can sort of connect up those voices, and particularly the poignancy of hearing voices that are no longer with us. Do you discover any sort of set that you could trace the path of the family's history? It's, It's a very fascinating question, because actually... Actually, I did, but not with these kind of discs, but with cylinders. There was a family in New Southgate, um, a quite well-off family, who in the early 1900s recorded themselves every Christmas over a period of 20 years when the families got together and kept these recordings up. And they're all now in the Museum of London, these discs. And it's another story, these cylinders. Um, but that was the only time I actually know of 
as you say, a kind of a, a collection over a period of time. There's lots of sets where people record, make lots of them, because, of course, one of the things we notice when we listen to them is how short they are. So, of course, you've got to put a lot of sixpences or a lot later on a lot of two and sixes into the slot to say something substantial. So there are sets of five, ten discs where people haven't finished off their story or haven't finished off reading something. So you do find those quite often. And sometimes you find them and there's a couple missing. It's obvious that, you know, <laughs> what's <laughs> happened to what they've heard and they didn't like it. Um, no, intriguing. I want to play um, uh, another tune, actually. Here we go. Always here when you sigh Never in my wordland Could there be ways to reveal In a phrase how I feel Have you ever had to turn a dog Feel and prove when they love That's the kind of magic Music we make with our lips When we kiss And there's a weepy old willow he really knows how to cry, that's how I cry in my pillow. If you should tell me farewell and goodbye, lullaby of birdland, whisper low. Lullaby of birdland, how we'll go. Fly high in birdland, high in the sky above all. Oh, because we're in love. I love it. Um, he's obviously a pretty good singer, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that would be another use for them, wouldn't he? If you were a, a good singer or you might even be a professional. Interestingly, I played that partly because yesterday we played uh, Lullaby of Birdland on an X-ray record, uh, mm -hmm. an Ella Fitzgerald, obviously a big tune at the time. And in the Soviet Union, um, Alan, there wouldn't be any way for a singer-songwriter or a, a non-professional musician to make a recording because you had to be a member of the Composers' Union to write lyrics, to be allowed to record your lyrics, and you had to be a member of the Musicians' Union to be able to write and record a tune. And, of course, becoming a member of the union would be subject to approval by the authorities. That was another way of controlling the whole thing. And so there, was no, there wasn't really any other way to, for amateurs to record at that time in the Soviet Union, apart from direct-to-disc on X-ray. It must have been wonderful this time, if you were a musician, you could just go into one of these booths and, you know, put your uh, sixpence in or letter your two and six and make a recording of you, right? So true. So true. And I think that this is common not only in the Eastern Bloc, where there were lots of added pressures, but certainly... Um, the early blues recordings that we find um, in the States, in the US, are often recorded on these kind of um, recordio um, machines or coin-operated machines, but certainly very cheap non-commercial recording equipment because of course those musicians could get nowhere near a studio and it was cheap and cheerful to be able to sort of hawk your talent and have a disc and say I've recorded this is what I sound like and it, until you got to that stage you were making these kind of recordings and famously lots of groups that are so well known today their very first recordings are on these kind of discs famously there's a Beatles one their first disc is in a little studio Wow, I didn't know that. So maybe that was up in Liverpool somewhere? They yeah, went yeah. into a store like Lewis's or something? or Absolutely. They right. went into a small recording studio that offered them, you know, you could for a 10 bob, you could make a record. Right. And it was a one of one. You only had one, mm. you know. So it w you weren't making a run of discs. And I think that is the beauty of all of these records, is that they are one in an in an addition of one. It's and the I, Elvis thing as well, isn't it? And the, Elvis, the exactly. Elvis. Elvis did the same as well. Um, it, you know, it was... It was it was the beginning. It mm. was it was the start. It was the kernel of what was going to become a kind of recorded career for some, and for others, it was the only record they ever made. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, I mean, but that's worth a bit then. That one-off record, Beatles record, isn't it? It's it, it, it. How can you put a price on? You it? couldn't put a price on it, right? Um, and I'm sure someone may have done but who knows what these things mm. are worth and certainly there are they, these recordings are highly prized certainly in the states and when i researched the series looking at the more the global reach of these records and spoke to american collectors some of the big blues collectors pay 
heavy money mm. for these very early recordings because these are very special. These are raw. You know, if you want blues really mm. dirty and real, you aren't going to get more more real than these kind of authentic recordings in very, very primitive recording um, um, studios. Mm. One of the things about the X-Ray Audio Project, one of the sort of themes of it, if you like, which seems to really appeal to people, particularly live, is just this, in fact, that it's a story about a time, just in the way you're talking about, when... Uh, recordings were one-offs, everyone's different, but also precious. And, uh, you know, at this time in the Soviet Union, if you if you were listening to the Beatles as they were at the end of the X-ray period, sound quality didn't matter. I mean, some of those records sound absolutely awful, right? But it was something precious about them because you couldn't get it. You know, it was, it was, it was super rare. And I think one of the themes that we found in with this project is that it's a sort of contrast to now mm. where recording and distribution is infinite. You know, you can get anything and for no cost, you don't have to pay for it, but it can be reproduced infinitely. And of course, these records, some of the beauty or the value of them, isn't it, is that they are one-offs. You're absolutely right. You know, I think that um, they are, they're revered for that reason. And of course, just like a 35 mil camera, when you're looking at your 24 or 36 film and you know that you know you you can't just go on photographing in the old days because you didn't have enough film so every shot counted and of course we live in a culture where it's just ad infinitum so there is something very special about that decisive moment the moment of that snap the moment of that recording obviously on the other side and what happens as well is that these are also part of a kind of throwaway culture as well. And the reason why some of them just end up and we find a lot of these records on eBay today, you know, being sold off is because they were they were dumped. People didn't see the value in them as well. We see the value. <laughs> and for example, when four guys went out on the, on the drink and recorded a disc at one in the morning at the end of a pier or something, and they, one of them get takes it home, listens to it, and thinks, you know, okay, I don't want to be remember, I don't want to remember that, and that ends up being dumped. And somehow we discover these discs. Obviously, they're valuable to us, but they weren't valuable to them at the time. And I suppose that is interesting as well. Is that is that what is valuable in the future is not valuable in the present. And I think that is something that why these records and people like us i think have become so interested is because there was just literally a blotting out of history i'm glad you mentioned end of the pier because i'm going to play another one of yours recorded in brighton hello hello Bert. just a word for you from brighton i'm only here for the day you know i thought you'd just like a message before i came back i wonder what you've been doing all day I haven't had time to sing you anything, but I just thought I'd like to make you a record. I wish you could answer me back. It's lovely here today. I've had a fine time, sat on the deck chair, sat in the deck chair all day. Been up and had tea, finished. Now we're just going back to the Sharabang. We should get home about oh, nine, half past. I wonder what you'll say to me when I come indoors. The arrow's going round on the top of the microphone where I'm speaking from and it's nearly up to the stop uh, red light thing and then I shall have to say goodbye goodbye old dear it's right up to the arrow and that's all you'll hear the Brighton connection is interesting of course because famously in Brighton Rock the the the, the movie with Richard Attenborough the execrable pinky the gangster makes a voice record, doesn't it? Most probably the most famous moment for these kind of records. It was the moment where a film that is oft remembered and is still a wonderful classic after so many years. And, um, you know, he does indeed. He records a disc and obviously it has a very particular role to play in the film. And those who haven't seen the film do see it and I won't spoil it for you. So that's people going, you know, on holidays, a perfect way. You know, it's a souvenir thing. And I want to play another one of yours from a bit further afield. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm at the top of the Empire State Building in New York. The Empire State Building is the highest in the world. It is 1,250 feet high and has 102 stories. I can see the whole of New York spread out below me. 
the towering skyscrapers look comparatively small, and the huge hotels and public buildings are far below. In the distance, I can see the, sta the Statue of Liberty, the Woolworth Building, the Rockefeller Center, and the Keys, where the Queen Mary and other Atlantic liners dock. New York is a very interesting city. Matilda told such dreadful lies it made one gasp and stretch one's eyes. Her aunt, who from her earliest youth had kept a strict regard for truth, attempted to believe Matilda. The effort very nearly killed her, and would have done so had not she discovered this infirmity. That's interesting, isn't it? Because a bit like Paul was saying earlier, that it sounds quite scripted. The first bit almost sounds as though she was using the machine in the Empire State, but reading a kind of reading from a pamphlet or something. Yes. And then she goes into this rather lovely sort of rendition of a poem in a sort of radio voice, doesn't she? Yeah. Totally, and I, I think it's um, um, so true about this relationship with the sort of technology people describing what they're doing, but also the fact that they needed a prompt to help them speak to a microphone. And in fact, in the very early years of these voice records, and this was a, this was a disc that was um, this recorded at the top of the um, Empire State, and the Empire State had one of these recording booths pretty much from the opening of the Empire State building. So it was a big thing. When you got to the top, you could make a record. And in the envelope where you got the record, when you got the, when you got the envelope, you had a little bit of script. So it told you the height of the tower, the distance from various buildings, what you could see from the, the position of the recording booth. So you were given that information. So you become a little bit of an expert. You're also promoting the tower itself, and which was very important. But certainly that's so true. All of these prompts. And in fact, when voice records first started, one of the things they did is they offered a little leaflet that came in the machine and you could pick one out, which actually told you what to say. So it in fact didn't even give you, you didn't even have to make up your own story or even tell your own, um, uh, present whatever you wanted to say. You actually were given that information. So it would say, hello, I'm so-and-so, I'm doing this. Um, um, how are you today? Um, it would be really nice to see you very soon. And all that kind of information was, so you just read it out. And of course, some people binned it, discarded it and didn't do that. But it shows how people were felt that they needed that kind of prompt or, they, mm. or, or, the, or the company felt that how would you break through people's nervousness and reticence to talk into a microphone? Mm. Now, in you mentioned America before, and of course they had their own huge culture of this stuff there, and yes. with the blues musicians. But another big thing uh, in America and here, of course, was the use in the war, wasn't it? And I'm going to play another one from your collection here. Uh, how do you do, Miss Otis Kistner of Wheeler, Wisconsin? This is Paul Haggerty, the Gem Blade reporter, and I'm speaking to you from Fort Benning in Georgia. We're very happy now with the best wishes of Gem Blades and Razors. We send you this recording made by your brother, Sergeant W.J. Kistner. Hello, sis. I happen to remember that you have a birthday coming up, so I thought I'd better give you a little remembrance. Each time as the year rolls by, take this record out and play it and think of me. Wishing you a very happy birthday, your brother Wendell. Well, thank you very much, Sergeant. Let me just add my good wishes on your birthday, too, Miss Kistner. And also that we all can help Uncle Sam now if we buy defense stamps and bonds. Goodbye. Right. I mean, Alan, to explain what's going on there, because it's quite a lot. I mean, there's an advertisement in there at the beginning, and there's somebody introducing and finishing it off. These were booths that were um, erected throughout the U.S. Um, by Gem Razor Blades, and also Pepsi-Cola did it as well. Um, and the idea was is that you, you could record a message. Um, you would go into the booth, record a message. Obviously, it was promoting those products. Um, you would have a recordist with you. So you, when, the, when the record was made, someone, the person, that host, would actually be also recording that disc significantly to make sure that you weren't saying anything about what you were doing in the war effort, what kind of training you had or anything like that. They were very simple messages to loved ones back home. But the important thing was there were morale boosters because that disc was possibly 
could sadly be the last time mm. someone may have heard their husband or their father. But also significantly for those people that were away from home, could be away from home for a very long time, the voice was there for them to listen to over and over again. These discs are very beautiful as well. Mm. They're lovely objects. And I think that's something going back to the work you've been doing researching um, the X-ray bones discs is that they're amazing objects to look at. Obviously, um, the, the beauty of these discs is that, that they weren't only the audio it was also the presentation mm. they came in a very attractive envelope the discs were what we call picture discs so the image on the disc would have been the photographs of the kind of booths that you could make the recording and on the other side an image of um for example a drawing of a pepsi cola bottle and something like that so it was actually a very they were attractive objects in their own right so they became something that you would want to treasure unlike possibly the throwaway things that we would also talk about as well. They were special treasured mm -hmm. objects, and particularly because of that voice. So we're going to hear another one. This is uh, Voice of the Forces. You're absolutely right. It comes in this beautiful envelope. It's organised by Army Welfare, NAFI. I'm not sure what that is, N-A-F-I. That was um, the the NAFI was were, were places where um, you would go for your um, social events. Right. So that was that was a sort of a place away from the battlefield. Hello, darling. This is Lord Stevens. I have been with you in two or three forms, in thoughts, in letters, and in dreams. And now something very different. My voice is with. You. This is Monday, the 27th of August, and my second day of leave in Jerusalem. My last away from you and home. Although the loose scheme is still an uncertainty, I still have my hopes of being at Christmas for good. In the meantime, I have other hopes, that is, of being with you on a short leave, and so break the monotony of these years of parting. Be ready for me, Kick at the ladder and roll in a barrel. Won't be long now. God bless you. I love you. Keep smiling. All will be well soon. Give my love to all at home. Yours for always, Bill. God, it's so, so poignant. You don't know, of course, whether he came home. Yeah. What, what is wonderful about that one in particular is that he... He's very intimate, isn't it? He's talking about you in my dreams. He, he's forgetting all the radio voice stuff. He's forgetting the fact that he's in a booth and somebody's listening in, Sergeant Major, whatever. He's just coming straight from the heart. And and that is very special, and that's why that one is a particular rarity. Because obviously not everyone did that. And so mm. some of the people couldn't, couldn't forget the fact they were in a studio and, and mm. talking like we are now. But also, you've, you do get, and not so much in the voice of the forces, but some of the previous ones, the extraneous sounds. And I find that also very interesting. It did sound like a foghorn in the back of one exactly. of the previous ones, which is, uh, it creates another picture in your head, doesn't it? Exactly. They somehow capture some, some of the end of the pier ones. You, 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 you do get a sense of the bigger picture, the world they're in. And one of the things I was very fortunate to be able to do when I first started recording and um, collecting these recordings was to to meet people, the children and the descendants of the people that recorded so they could give me a bigger picture about the speaker, tell me a little bit about their and lives. And what it was like to receive these discs. They could tell you that, could they? Because that must have been very special as well, wasn't it? Your response to dropping it on the gramophone or the record player and, and hearing the voice of your loved one coming across the world. Yeah, totally. And I, I think it still is. And I think that, you know, however kind of, however more aware of the kind of technological world we become, we're still as sensitive to the sound of voice mm. and particularly the voices of people that were close to us who were no longer around. And I think that that is something that we can never underestimate. And I think that is one of the most beautiful things about these recordings. And that's what really sort of made me so fascinating is that we do have a sort of window into everyone's soul mm. in these records. There is something special about these you know, these little moments. Yes, definitely something that never changed because uh, I've got a five-year-old daughter, but I've got her singing when she's three, and it's my favourite little bit, just on the phone, yeah, and it still brings back everything that I need in the world, that one little recording, little 15-second snippet uh, that I'll, will be with me all my life, which is interesting. Yes. Yeah, and... 
Alan, we're drawing to a close and maybe you could just talk about how did it all end? I mean, you've got this culture right the way through from the 30s to the late 60s, possibly early 70s. Into the Bo- 70s. Booths in the Waterloo yeah. Station, in Brighton Pier, in shops and stuff, and then they're all gone. I mean, yeah. what happened to the machines? What happened, really, was that the cassette came in. And when the cassette recorder came in, where you got, you didn't get a minute or two and a half minutes or whatever, you got 30 minutes, you got C60, you got C90. And you could record as many minutes as you wanted. And these kind of discs were no longer the kind of, were in vogue. And the machines were simply removed and scrapped. And they're gone. And... There apparently, I've heard in the states, someone has found an old caliber machine. Um, the caliber, the caliber disc is the forty-five RPM disc that we know and love from the sixties that could have was phased out here in the early seventies. Um, and I and I, I suspect that 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 machine may have been on an ocean liner, and that's hmm. why it ended up in the states. Was why would something as you know big like a big machine end up in the states? But I have not heard of any machine surviving. Certainly places like the science museum and i've researched at the science museum and the science museum have a fantastic collection of audio equipment going back to the year dot but it's one of the areas they don't have at all so these machines just disappeared and of course these recordings people who remember the recordings can also visualize exactly where they recorded these discs whether it was in Swansea market whether it was the end of South End Pier whether it was in Lewis's department store whether it was on an ocean liner they do remember them you know they they they're still there um but of course the machines gone did they equate in numbers to say like a jukebox was it as as popular as that kind of thing i'm just trying to see how many obviously we don't know the- that is a tough one to ask. How many were made? Mm. We don't know. Certainly, most major railway stations had them. Mm. Department stores, end of piers. So we do the maths. You know, there were hundreds of these machines. Thousands? Maybe not. Who, you know, difficult. It would be interesting. It'd be, you know, if the listeners can feed back and with their stories, because obviously this is the great thing about it. You know, that's why at the beginning you know, I really appreciate the word expert. I'm no expert, and actually there is nothing. You can't be an expert because we don't know. There isn't an official history. There never will be a really an official history of these discs. And of course, it's up to it. All what helps is people's own stories. It and is, they, and they fit all this stuff together, as you found when you've done all your research. Uh, it's a sort of secret, or it's not really secret history, but it's a sort of somewhat lost history. I'm hoping that somebody's listening and thinks and says, "Yeah, there's a." There's a sort of junkyard just round by me that's got one of those machines. I mean, <laughs> 37 machines. There's got to be right there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, <clears throat> that's a very good point, actually, because, um, you know, the way that we collected most of the information for the X-ray audio book yeah. actually is oral history by interviewing Soviet bootleggers, you know, or the people that were Soviet bootleggers at the time, and they told us how they did it, how you bought these things, how you sold them, how you got in trouble with the police, etc. We are actually at the end. Alan, thank you very much. Such a pleasure. And thank you, uh, thank you Paul. And we're going to f- play out on another one of Alan's collection. A few words in it, but it's mainly a noise. A very nice noise. <laughs> hey, Andy. <laughs> well, you're going to come over and fix my roof. Huh? <laughs> Well, what, what am I going to do if it rains? <laughs> I think you better come over tomorrow. You think you can do that? <laughs> you let all your other words cord run over there first. There's nothing better than to laugh, is it? You've got to laugh. And if I laugh, tis that I may not weep at any mortal thing, as the poet said. So, Happy New Year to all our listeners. 
We'll be back, of course, all the way through 2022 with more stories from the other side. You can check out all the past episodes at bureauoflostculture.com. We're also on all the usual podcasters, Apple, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, all that stuff, as well as Soho Radio. You can contact us, if you wish, at uh, bureauoflostculture at gmail.com if you've got ideas for shows or for guests um, or questions and thoughts for us. If you want to leave us a review anywhere, we'd appreciate that. It's always nice to hear from friends. In the meantime, I hope you have a rather wonderful year, and we'll see you next time. I am Stephen Coates, and this was the Bureau of Lost Culture. <laughs> <laughs>